Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. Westside's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. So we're in Mark, we've been in this series and, I, and I'm on Mark 2 here and uh, I gotta be honest with you, this has a, a place in it, a key in it that I for months now have been excited to kind of preach at you. I think it's super important for our church to pick up on. And I'm going to get to that. But in studying this passage, the one Jesse just read, there's so much meat here. There's so much good stuff that I thought, boy, I kind of want to tackle this kind of exegetically as well. Kind of cheating because you're not supposed to do exegetical and topical. In case you don't know what I'm talking about there, that's okay. Typically when a preacher goes to preach about something, they will sometimes go, and it's not just two ways, but typically they'll go topical maybe, which is really um, beneficial because churches are unique, communities are unique, and sometimes there's just words for the church, you know? Uh, And so topical is just what it sounds like. You get get a topic that you're talking about, you preach on that. In case you don't know what exegetical means, exegetical is a little bit more verse by verse, letting each verse do the talking, let things come out of it with no like real points. Uh, and, and what it does is it allows you to kind of teach a little bit. You learn a little bit deeper about some of the things, but also you just kind of let the Bible do the talking. And so you might get hit with something here where somebody else gets hit with something here and it's kind of neat. Um, and so I'm gonna kind of try to attempt both. I, I had, it's been a long time since I got to preach exegetically and I'm really excited about it. So. We'll see how this goes, okay? But uh, let's pray. I like to pray before I get started, and, and if you'll allow me, let's do that. Father, let your word be a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path for all of us here, Lord, same. Will you just let your word speak to us now and, uh, and let it do what it does by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a, uh, a guy from, I believe it was, I think it was Wisconsin. Uh, when he was born, he was born with this really, really large nose. It was sort of two or three times the size of a normal nose. And it, it, it was a real struggle for him. Uh, you can imagine he was made fun of in school. Everybody would stare at it. In fact, I think he might have been from Montana, actually. Um, <laughs> I've, been, I've been so excited to say that. Anyway, so... But, uh, but as he grew, the nose grew, okay? And, and it was a real struggle, and he ended up dropping out of school, and he just never went outside anymore. And he got into his 20s and 30s, 40s. He even turned 50 years old and didn't have any friends and stayed inside all the time. Real sad. And he was reading in the paper that they were putting together this ball or a dance for people with oddities just like he had. And so... He got really excited because the whole point of it was this would give people a chance to meet other people and socialize and maybe make some friends with people that would totally understand what it was like to be stared at and to hurt from that. So he ordered a suit online and decided to go. And uh, he was so excited. He went and there's for sure lots of people there, all with different kinds of oddities, all kinds of stuff. And because he hadn't really talked to somebody in years, he was still a little bit socially 
shy. So he ended up just sitting in a chair and kind of watching people dance. So he sat there and he noticed across the room, directly across the room, amidst all the dancers, was this beautiful woman, gorgeous woman in a beautiful red dress. And to him, it was like, that's really weird. I wonder what she's doing here. She doesn't seem like she has any issues at all. I wonder, she seems so out of place. And then his heart leapt when she got up and started making a beeline right towards him. And he could tell she was coming straight at him. You know, there was something about it. You know, she had his eye on, her eye on him and, and she was walking straight towards him. His, his, you can imagine his heart's racing. He's scared to death. And she gets right up to him. And the whole time she's walking to him, he's saying to himself, like, ah, I, I just don't see what's wrong with her. This is really weird. She's sort of out of place. Well, when she got close to him, he stood up to meet her face to face. And that's when he realized what it was. She had an eye made out of wood and it was a kind of a nasty one. It wasn't a very expensive one. It just was, looked like wood. But he was like, she's still so pretty. Can't believe she wanted to come talk to me. And he was trying to talk and, you know, obviously scared about his big nose and talking back and forth. And, and suddenly he realized in his heart, like, wow, I'm making a friend here. This is neat. And not only that, but he started to like feel like kind of almost in love, like he couldn't help it. It's just this wonderful thing. And they were making this small talk. And she said to him, you know, you just seem like such a neat guy. You just seem so, such a neat guy. Would, would, would you like to dance with me? And he said, oh, would I? And she went, big nose, big nose. And she ran out. <laughs> come on, come on. I, I, part of what I, my secret love for that joke is that I, in the middle of it actually has foreshadowing where I said she had her eye on him. But anyway, uh, the church, the church for years, unfortunately has been pretty good, and actually probably since its very beginning, at making people feel like they have big noses and wooden eyes. And especially in these last five to 10 years, we've been seeing people leave in droves and I want to address that at the end. I think there's a key in what we read that we should adopt as our approach. And we'll get to that. But like I said, I want to, I want to speak um, through these verses. Here's what I would like to do. I'm just going to, I'm going to talk through them um, exegetically, like I said. The idea is to pick up bullet points. I'm not going to be able to be exhaustive about it. Um, hopefully, maybe this is the kind of thing that in one of your community groups or something like that, you guys could talk about if you take notes or whatever it is. But I'm just gonna motor through this and then we'll get to like sort of what I feel like is my big point at the end, okay? So we're gonna start right back in the beginning. Mark 2, 1, when he had come back to Capernaum several days after it was heard, it was heard that he was at home, talking about Jesus. Um, this home in Capernaum was most likely Peter's house. Peter and his brothers were fishermen um, and Capernaum was a place that sat right above the Sea of Galilee. I think we, we got some maps. Um, maps are cool. If we, yeah, there we go. There's that one, and then we'll do the close-up one. See, see where that's pointing? Capernaum's right there on the sea. And that makes sense that Peter would live there with his brothers because they, they were fishermen. And uh, so they were real close to the water. And Jesus, most likely this is like his headquarters. And many were gathered together, verse 2. So there was no longer room even near the door. And he was speaking, or the word laleo, Greek, the word to them. The only reason I make a little mention of that is because it was very informal. Some versions say preaching or teaching. 
this is actually probably better translated speaking to them. Only, the only reason I mention that is because it's kind of cool that he's just kind of laying back and hanging and he's speaking to these guys, just talking. But everybody's coming just to even just hear him talk. Pretty cool. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get in, um, as, you, as you heard, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet, which the paralytic was lying. Now, here's the cool thing. Listen, these four guys, no doubt, in my mind, no doubt, these guys probably had either at least heard of or maybe even saw that miracle with the leper that we talked about a couple weeks ago um, at, on Super Bowl Sunday. That miracle had to have been amazing, by the way. So I, I have this idea that either they heard about it or at least or saw it, and they were like, hey, we got to get our buddy over there. We got to get our buddy over there. And so they get their friend, and like, the, like it says, they can't, couldn't get into the house, and so they get up onto the roof. Now, just so you know, these houses in Capernaum most likely had all flat roofs, and uh, we can show that picture, by the way. Flat roofs. This is, this is a kind of a depiction of what they probably looked like. You didn't, you didn't know they had uh, drones back then. Um, but uh, in fact, Josephus actually said he described Capernaum and the houses as the road of roofs because you could literally walk across them and get to somebody else's house just walking across the tops. And they were most likely probably made of like straw and hay mixed with mud. And so these guys are digging into that to get in with all those implications. Look, you should have a lot of questions like I do. Can you imagine you're, you're part of sitting there with Jesus and there's dust coming from the ceiling, you know? And I imagine that like, they didn't dig a big hole. They probably just dug enough just to fit this guy in, right? Because that would have taken a long time. So imagine they're, they're, they're like setting this guy in. He's probably tied up to his pallet. I'm like picturing Spider-Man here, you know what I mean? Like sneaking down in front of everybody. And I'm also picturing like, suppose it was you, you're, tie, you're kind of tied up, you know, you can't really do anything. Your buddies have let you down, like they're letting you down this thing. And you're like spinning a little. And you're so, yeah. hi everybody. <laughs> like, what did he do? You know, like, I'm sorry. Uh, I kind of don't have control of this situation right now, right? Then it says in verse five, pretty cool note here, that Jesus seeing their faith said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Two huge things right there. Jesus seeing their faith. What a cool uh, example of, I think, Jesus digging when we come together in unity and we come together in community and we do things in faith together to go help someone. I think Jesus digs that. I think he loves that. That could, that could be a whole sermon on its own. But he says to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I, I'm imagining these guys at the top looking down through the hole, Right? They just did all this work to get him in there. They saw the miracle of the leper. I wonder, I just kind of wonder, it doesn't say anything, but can you kind of picture them at the top just kind of going, hey, that's, that's not what we came for. Like, <laughs> let's, let's see something here, right? Why would he say this? Why would he say this? Brooks mentioned it um, on Super Bowl Sunday about the leper, but um, in case you forgot or weren't here, the the. The teaching, the Hebrew teaching, particularly that came from the Pharisees that were real good at being legalistic and, and um, I, I, would even, I would even say that the Pharisees at times were superstitious in the way they would push people 
and they would tell people that your affirmities come from your sin. You guys think that we have like offended people being told things now. Can you imagine what it would be like to be like, well, that thing that you got going on, it's because of your sin. We don't know how this guy got paralyzed, whether it was from birth. Maybe this guy fell off a roof and broke his neck. Who knows? But this man would have had a reminder every single morning that he was a bad guy. Because that's what he'd been taught. That's what he'd been told. So for Jesus to know that about his heart and say that, so beautiful. It's so amazing for him to do that. But obviously there were some scribes sitting there and they were reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Do you know they're right? They're right. This is blasphemy if he's not God, right? I mean, that's, it's actually, I mean, a lot of times these guys say stuff and it's the truth on paper. That's the, that's the thing to catch. It's the truth on paper, but these guys had it all wrong. And Jesus immediately, he knows in his spirit that they're doing this. Um, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm motoring through here to give you bullet points, but he says to him, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say arise and take up your pallet and walk? Now, both are easy to say. I just said both of them, right? That's not what he means here. What he really means is what's easier to say and it be the truth. Okay, so that's what he's saying here. So is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven and that be the truth? That's a big deal because for me to say that and it be the truth means I am in fact God in your presence. That's pretty hard to be right about unless it's true. Or is it harder to say arise and take up your power? Well, that's, that's hard too, right? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. Big deal here. Big deal here. Check this out. And I, I want you to, I'm hoping you're going to see my heart in this issue. This is, a, this is a four square church. It's Pentecostal. We believe in healing. Okay. I would never, I would never say God can do anything he wants to do. If I pray for somebody who's sick, I'm, most of the time I'm like, God, do your thing because I can't do it. But I know he can do it, and it's not even, he doesn't cause him to sweat or anything. He can do whatever he wants. Often when I pray for somebody who's sick, I will use this term. I'll say, Lord, you are intimately acquainted with even the cells in their body to know what's wrong, so I'm giving it to you. That's how I usually pray for the sick. But I want to show you here that obviously Jesus is about more than that. He's about souls. He's about saving this guy's soul. See, you can get healed or you can get, you can be focused on healing. You can focus like on this, this, all that. And you could die in your sins healthy and never see the kingdom, never go to heaven. Jesus is more interested in about souls here. Now, what does that mean? I'm just, that's my little two cents there that I'm always gonna be more about praying for somebody's salvation, for their soul, for their heart, even more than a healing, even more than a healing. It just makes the context of it and the importance of it, in my opinion, in its right order. And so he gets up and he walks away. Anybody here that's dealt with paralysis or knows friends that this, the biological miracle that this was had to have been incredible, incredible. 
He gets up and walks, no, no physical therapy, nothing. The things that would have happened to his bones and his muscles and all the things inside him that would have had to right themselves like that is amazing. Moving on though, now we have where he, he goes to the seashore and the multitude are coming to him and he was teaching them. And this word is didasco. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it's a different word here. And that's why I made a little comment on that first word. This is more formal. He's now teaching, okay? Just, just for something to kind of put in your pocket. And he passed by Levi, the son of Alphaeus, um, and, and that was sitting at the tax office, and he said, follow me, and he rose and followed him. This guy Levi was, is believed mostly by most scholars that it's Matthew here. And this wasn't uncommon for guys to have two names. Matthew would have been more like his Greek name, and Levi would have been his Jewish name. That was pretty typical, so don't get thrown by that, because uh, we see the same story um, paralleled with this in Matthew when he talks about being called. And it came about... And he was reclining at the table in his house. Many tax gatherers, sinners, were dining with Jesus um, and following him. And the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax gatherers. And they began saying to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? Listen, that's not a bad question either. Like if you saw one of the leaders of this church or a pastor or somebody, and they were in kind of a sketchy place, hanging out with some sketchy people and you know what I mean? You'd have, you naturally would go, I don't know if that's good that they're there, right? Come on, we'd all do that. We'd all do that. Now, it's even worse with this though because the Pharisees and the scribes, they had Jewish Hebrew tradition. They had the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just like, they had Psalm 1, more verses than this, but how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. See, they would have taken something like that. They would have hung their hat on that, but also they would have even taken it almost suspiciously or superstitiously, I meant to say, superstitiously, like, like they believed all the time that just rubbing up against somebody who was a sinner could, could wear off on you and you could be in a lot of trouble for that. They had a right to ask that. And you need to know, um, these are some bad people. When it says sinners, like I, I used to kind of look at that and go, boy, like it's kind of weird for a Pharisee to be like, those sinners. One of the things that's implied here is people who are unrepentant and living the way they want to, and even so as far as to make money off of it. They had harlots and different people like that there. And then certainly the tax gatherers. These tax guys, by the way, I was doing a little bit of studying on them. Uh, one of the things that Craig Keener talked about was these guys were bad dudes. They wouldn't just cheat people of their money. They at times would go into houses to collect taxes. And if that person wasn't there, they would beat up whoever was in the house until they told them where the guy was that owed taxes. Sounds a little like the mob. And they were like that. There's even history that talks about how whole communities would split town when they knew a tax collector was coming into town. These guys are bad dudes and Jesus is hanging out with them. But let me just make this clear. Because sometimes you'll hear people go, oh, you know, I kind of do this on a Friday night because, you know, well, Jesus hung out with those kind of people. When Jesus talks about being the physician to the sick here, there's one thing he's doing. He is making it clear that he's not just sitting there hanging out with these people. He's on the clock. He's working. Okay? Make no mistake of it. He is working. 
He's not just sitting there enjoying himself. I know that he enjoyed loving these people. That's, don't get me wrong, but he's not, this is not an excuse to just go, ah, see, we can do whatever we want because Jesus did. Now listen, um, that's, the, that's the first 17 verses of chapter 2. And what I want to do now is, I, like I said, I want to, I this, this part of the message now, I, I want to hammer home something I think is really important. And it's been on my heart in a big way. So, so much so that you'll have to forgive me, but I'm going to read a little bit of here, something I wrote, because I don't want to miss something I think that needs to be said. Um, it's not my typical thing to do to, to read my own stuff, but um, just listen for a moment, and, and then we'll wrap things up. Within verse 17, okay, is the key to what all of our attitudes should be, both to ourselves and to others. Christ's approach toward people should inform ours. Wouldn't you agree? Okay. Towards our neighbors, our coworkers, towards every human being we see on the street or in the stores or schools or businesses, whatever. Every exchange, every meeting, every encounter for Jesus started, started with compassionate love. Everyone. A love that saw straight through sin and mistakes. If he put a label on someone, if he put a label on someone, the label would have read, worth rescuing. Hear that? I want to say it again. If Jesus labeled somebody, in his mind, it would have been the label, worth rescuing. He sees your worth, worth that comes from the fact that you are God's dream. You're God's idea. You're his handiwork. He thought you up. I didn't think you up. He thought you up. You're his idea. That's an incredible thought, just that alone. You have a label on you that says worth rescuing. Now listen, it's going to get uncomfortable for a sec. Doing that on purpose. You have a label on you that says worth rescuing. It doesn't say black or white. It doesn't say heterosexual or homosexual doesn't say a pervert or a dirty thinker or a cheater or addicted to porn or any of the names that we might label orientations or desires. Your label doesn't say man or woman or gender confused. Your label doesn't say liar or thief or abuser or abused. It doesn't say hater or hater or hated or gossiper or a bad friend. Your label doesn't say that. Not to Jesus your label also doesn't say rich or, or successful. It doesn't say hard worker or healthy or physically fit or good at this or that. Your label doesn't say that to Jesus. All those things that you can do or accomplish. It doesn't say any of those things. It's those, those things that we typically put on people every day. Those are the labels that, that when we throw them on people, they become the ones that we ourselves see when we look in the mirror. The very idea of the Hebrew Sabbath was to remind ourselves and to each other that worth comes from who we are before God, not what we do. That's why, that, that's why rest was commanded. The Pharisees of that time even screwed that up by turning that into a legalistic and religious thing that you did. You rested. I mean, that's why they got it wrong. It's like, this is what we do. We rest. And if you don't do it, you're in sin. If our worth comes from who we are, which is what I'm saying, 
and not what we do, then it doesn't even change or get diminished when what we do happens to be a mistake or even something wrong or sinful or evil. You hear that? If, it's, if our worth is about who we are, then it doesn't change when we mess up. And what we see in verse 17 is Jesus's approach. He saw sin as a byproduct of our sickness and our brokenness. We are sick and we are broken. And you know what? Hurt people hurt people. You ever hear that saying? Hurt people hurt people. <laughs> I'm about to sing. Um, listen, so this is how we want to wrap it up. We often find ourselves, especially in churches, we see it in theology, we see it in politics, all kinds of stuff. We're, as human beings, we're really good at finding ourselves in a ditch. And typically, and what I mean by that is too extreme on one side. And then what happens is we're in that extreme ditch and we do so much to try to get out of it that sometimes we cross right over the road and go into the other ditch. And that's happening in our time right now. Listen, when I got saved, my salvation was good and all that, but I, but I, I got saved more out of fear of going to hell and shame that I felt. That's just how I was taught when I was a little kid. So that naturally kind of informed how I became an adult with my relationship with God because I sort of still felt like I disappointed him all the time, all the time. And I can totally understand in my heart why some people would do like what they call deconstructing and just say, you know what, this is dumb, I'm out of here. And what happens is that they go too far and they go right over to the other ditch. Let me just kind of real quickly explain what I mean. And this, these, there's, this is, I'm, over, I'm overstating it, probably oversimplifying it, and I'm talking about the extremes. So trust me, I'm, I'm saying that, but this, is, this will give you a picture of what I'm talking about. That legalistic kind of pharisaical ditch of you're bad, you're a bad person, and you should be, you know, you should be scared of hell. Okay, you have that on the one side. And then you go too far to the other side, which is what I'll call like, like extreme progressive Christianity. Not all of the stuff coming out of that camp is, is horrible or anything. And some of the ideas there um, are worth looking into. But I'm going to talk about the extremes. That it's, it's the extreme of you're bad and you should be scared of hell. This one would be you're fine and you shouldn't fear anything. That would be this side. You're just fine. Everything's fine about you. This side would say, God's mad at you. Read about God's wrath. He's mad at you. And this side say, God never gets mad. He doesn't get mad. What are you talking about? This side would, would make you look at the cross and go, you see that? You see that? That's your fault. That's your fault, that cross there, that guy hanging on there. You go too extreme the other way in the other ditch, and the cross wasn't even really necessary. And they'll, they'll even go so far as to say, like, to believe that it was necessary is like claiming that God committed some kind of, you know, divine child abuse. What Christ does in, seven, in, this, in verse 17 is comes right up the middle, right up the middle. When you have this whole idea of that you're bad and you should be scared or you're, you're fine, you shouldn't be. He says, I see your brokenness. He doesn't call you bad. He just says you're broken. You're sick and you're broken. Isn't it cool that... He was a carpenter. It's cool that he calls himself as, of the physician for your sickness or the, or the carpenter for your brokenness. I, I just love that. But this idea of this side says God's mad. God's never mad. That doesn't make any sense to me, guys. That doesn't make any sense to me. I am seeing a God more and more in my life that I, I actually, is like more like my father was. I was never afraid of my dad. My dad loved me. 
accepted me. But you know what? I was scared to death to hurt my mom or my sister. God's wrath is actually supposed to be for you, to protect you. I'm throwing that out there as a grenade. You can think about that one. I think it's crazy to think that we could love and not get upset at all when one of our loved ones is having something horrible happen to them. And then you have the cross as, oh, you should be ashamed of that. That's this. And then, then the extreme, the cross wasn't even necessary. And it was divine child abuse. And I, I want to tell you that Jesus comes right up the middle and says, I was glad to endure the cross for you. He says that in Hebrew 12 too. Look, Jesus simply says that we're sick and broken. If that still offends you, I don't know what I can do for you. Honestly. Romans 5, 6 actually goes so far as to call us helpless. And then Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I feel like to be offended at that is to skip the part that says God demonstrates his love for you, that he loves you first, and go, what did you call me? You call me a sinner? You're saying I'm helpless? Skip right over the fact that he loves you first. You know what we act like when we do that? We act like herd animals. Think about it. What's the most dangerous animals in the world? They're either the big ones who are starving or they're the smaller ones that are hurt or trapped, right? Or scared. You go to, go to help an animal that's like trapped in the woods. What are they going to do? They're going to bite you. They're going to try to bite you. They don't even know that you're trying to help them. I feel like that's how we act sometimes with God's grace and his goodness that he loves us first. He wants to save us and we sit there and go, what did you call me? I don't get it. He loves us first. He sees us as broken. I love that. That's how I feel like we need to start seeing people. It's how we get past all of this how we're called judgmental and haters and all the things that the church is called Love first, and we go right to, hey, people are broken. Brokenness leads to sin. How can it, look. I think about, like, the flood. How could you sin after the flood? How could you sin after the Egyptian army was crushed by those, by the waters? Right after the Israelite go through and they're being chased by the Egyptians, right? And then, and I, and I always love that story because it's always like, hey, uh, they're still coming, you know? And then those waters just crush them. How do you sin after that? How could you sin after that? Or like when you saw, when they saw God come down on Mount Sinai, how do you sin after that? You know how? Because they're broken. Because it's what we do. It's what we do. This is how I'm going to finish. I have a, just a fun story and, and I want to finish. Um, this week, I had a neat illustration of this this week, okay? Um, there's a, one of our secretaries at work got her purse stolen right out of her car. She had left her car unlocked. And our security cameras caught the person because the person had been casing all throughout all the cars. And it just so happened her car was open, so <laughs> she got her purse out of there. And she took off, and it was only about 10 minutes later that they caught it on the security camera. So she went out to find this girl. And I, not very happily, as you can imagine. And so I got back and I, I had a job fall through, so I had some time and I'm like, ooh, 
let me go look. I'll go look. I'll go take the company van and look around. So I go out and I'm, as I'm driving, guys, I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to jump out of the van and chase after and tackle her? I'm going to go to jail myself, right? So I started thinking about like, well, what, what do you think you're going to do? I mean, I had a picture of what she looked like and I'm, and the other funny thing is I'm driving by people who kind of had like a dark blue jacket on like that. And I'm like, I, and I'm up like that, you know, and everybody's thinking like, what are you looking at me for like that? But here's the thing. Here's what I thought, especially with getting this message in, in my brain this whole last month or so, I started saying to myself, you know, I started kind of rehearsing what I would say to her because I was starting to say like, you know, I'm going to say, Hey, I'm, I'm a friend. Look, they caught you on, on camera. They caught you. So why don't you just leave the purse here? take off. I'll take the purse back and, and good luck. And I'll, you know, God bless kind of thing. like I was, I was trying to be super nice. Cause I knew, look, nobody grows up to want to be a purse thief. Nobody grows up to be in the situation she was in. And I started to think these words, she should be hoping I'm the one who finds her. Right. She should be hoping I'm the one who finds her and not the girl that she stole from who is looking through her car at something she could hit her with. Right? As Christians, you guys, we should be the people that people want to run into. If we are going to become, this is what I'm finishing with, actually the band can come up. If we are going to become the hands and feet of Jesus, like what we say here, we need to become people that the world should want to encounter. People who see all people as worth rescuing and through the lens of love and compassion.